Coming up on this week's show, we have an extended interview with Frank W. Butterfield, the author of the Nick Williams Mystery Series. This is the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. Each week, we bring you exclusive author interviews, book recommendations, and explore the latest in gay pop culture. Welcome to episode 230 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. I'm Will from willkanaus.com, and with me, as always, is my co-host and husband, Mr. Jeff Adams. Hello, everybody. This episode of the podcast is brought to you in part by a remarkable community on Patreon. We'll have more information on how you can join the community at the end of the show, along with a sneak peek of what we have coming up for you next week. Well, everyone, welcome back. Another episode, more book talk. I hope everyone had a fine and dandy February. Welcome to March. Indeed. Just... February just shot by, even with the bonus day. I know, it's crazy. Whether it's going to be a lion or a lamb, we have, well, we'll I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, it's too early to tell. <laughs> Let's kick off the month with an announcement, shall we? I feel like I want to make some fanfare sound effect, but that's only going to get me laughed at, so I'll refrain. Get a kazoo. <laughs> that kind of thing. Well um, done, that was a good kazoo noise. <laughs> In all seriousness, we are starting something brand new. We are very proud to announce the Big Gay Fiction Book Club. Now, I'm sure you're probably asking yourself, Will, how is this book club going to work? I'm happy to tell you. This is how it's going to work. The Big Gay Fiction Book Club is essentially going to start out as a bonus episode for our Patreon supporters. The first Tuesday of every month, we will drop a special bonus episode where Jeff and I will talk about a specific book in detail, a little bit more detail than we usually would hear on the Fiction Podcast. And then at the end of the month, on the last Tuesday, that special bonus episode will be released into the regular podcast feed. Now, what book have Jeff and I chosen for this special inaugural book club episode? <laughs> Once again, I'm so glad you asked. It's going to be Annabeth Albert's Arctic Heat. And this is the third book in her Alaska series, a series of books that if you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you know that I am absolutely crazy bonkers in love with this series. And spoiler alert, the third book does not disappoint. <laughs> I'm so happy I finally got to read one of these. We have a we have a thing on the show where we try not to read the same book so that we're not, you know, one of us reviewing it one week, another one reviewing it the other week. And because of the book club, I got to read this and finally get into Annabeth Albert's world. And I loved it so much. Now, Annabeth talked to us about Arctic Heat in episode 195. Here's her take on what this particular book is all about. The close proximity, we have a ranger who's handed this volunteer who's going to be snowed in with for the season. And this does happen, actually. In Alaska, there are volunteer positions where you can basically go and stay in the state park over winter. And so um, you're able to basically experience an Alaskan winter with a ranger. And it's kind of cool. So I was like, yeah, when I heard about this, I was like, oh yeah, this is gonna be a romance. And so <laughs> the, um, the one hero who comes from California, he's kind of a free spirit and he has no idea what he's in for, even though he's been around snow a little bit, but he has no idea what he's in for. And then we have the older cranky ranger who also is like, he's lost his longtime partner. She's gone on to be back in the city and he's really kind of cranky about this and he's been handed this guy and so they're going to spend the winter snowed in together and along the way they're going to catch some feelings and it's going to be really fun and so they meet each other at training and they're really not sure about each other but so we have Quill who's the ranger and Owen who's the younger guy from California and Owen has a feeling about Quill kind of from the beginning and he's got his number. And so they end up going out to dinner. And at this point, Quill doesn't know yet that they're gonna be snowed in together all winter. So Quill's kind of in the dark about that. But Owen is sure about kind of, um, he likes Quill and he likes Quill a lot. 
I loved writing Owen and Quill. They were so much fun. It takes place over a couple of months, so we get to kind of see their progression. It's a little bit of a slow burn. Each of the books in the series has been a little more slow burn, but once they get going, there's a lot of heat. <laughs> and so it's, it was a really fun one for me, and I really enjoyed kind of... Whereas Arctic Wild had the bigger cast of characters, this is mainly the two of them dealing with the elements of nature, dealing with each other, dealing with roommate issues. It's kind of the odd couple in, um, in Alaska. And so it was just a lot of fun. So our book club selection for the month of March is going to be Arctic Heat by Annabeth Albert. That special bonus episode is available to our Patreon community right now. But that episode will be arriving into your regular podcast feed on Tuesday, March 31st, which gives you some time to read the book if you haven't done so already. But if you can't wait until then and would like to know more about how you can join our Patreon community, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash biggayfictionpodcast. In The Hockey Player's Heart, The Feel-Good Gay Romance by Jeff Adams and Will Knauss, hockey star Caleb Carter returns to his hometown to recover from an injury. He never expects to run into his one-time crush at a grade school fundraiser. Seeing Aaron Price hits him hard, like being checked into the boards. The attraction is still there, even after all these years, and Caleb decides to make a play for the school teacher. You miss 100% of the shots you never take, right? Aaron has been burned by love before, and can't imagine what a celebrity like Caleb could possibly see in a guy like him. Their differences are just too great. But as Aaron spends more time with Caleb, he begins to wonder if he might have what it takes to win the hockey player's heart. Get the hockey player's heart at Amazon.com. So while we were in Daytona Beach a couple weeks ago at the Coastal Magic Convention, we had the opportunity to sit down with Frank W. Butterfield. Frank lives in Daytona Beach, so it was the perfect opportunity to get together with him and talk about this amazing universe that he's created that has its foundation in the Nick Williams mystery series. The conversation was so good. We're having an extra long interview segment this week, and we hope you enjoy getting to know more about Frank and the mystery series and everything that goes into the creation of this universe. Frank, thanks so much for being here. It's a thrill to have you on the show finally. Thanks for asking me to be here, and we get to do it here in lovely Daytona Beach. Yeah, we are actually sitting live with Frank. He lives in Daytona Beach. We're here right now for the Coastal Magic Convention, and we were able to to get some time to sit down and talk with him, which is super cool. It's always fun to do these in person. I'm really looking forward to it. It's kind of cool. So you have, as I was looking through your backlist, you've got nearly 50 books, which is pretty awesome. And 32 of those are part of the Nick Williams mystery series. So that seems a very appropriate place to start. Tell us about this series and who Nick Williams is. Well, it's the first series. And the first book in that series, The Unexpected Heiress, is where I started. Nick is, when we start off, he is the richest man in San Francisco who also happens to be a gay private eye. That's an interesting combination that you could be the richest man in San Francisco and be a PI, gay or otherwise. Well, and what he does is, in fact, the very first chapter, he turns somebody away because she kind of comes sauntering in and starts using language he doesn't like. And he's like, you know, I don't really need you as a client. And then his secretary immediately is like, you turned away another one. (laughs) But he and, and Carter, which is his lover, They live actually in Eureka Valley, which is what is now known as the Castro, in like a really unassuming bungalow. And although they've got millions, they're not really flaunting it other than Nick is kind of famous for if he goes out to dinner, you know, in 1953, a really nice dinner would have been about 12 bucks. He'll drop 100 as a tip. And as Carter at one point says, like, busboys are sending prayers doormen everywhere burning candles at midnight hoping that you'll stop in you know that sort of thing so that's a fun part of it but so nick is like i said he's a private eye he had a really difficult childhood his mother disappeared when he was about seven and he didn't know where she went and his father was pretty much absent he was raised by the housekeeper and the 
and the, his dad's chauffeur in a house that doesn't exist, but if it had existed, would have been one of the two buildings on Knob Hill that didn't collapse in the earthquake and fire. And so at one point, Carter says, yeah, you know, all these pictures of Knob Hill where we see the flood mansion and there's the only thing standing. You know, if only the camera was like a little bit to the left, we could see your grandfather's house right behind it, but we can't see it in any of these pictures. So, so he grew up on Knob Hill, but doesn't have any Knob Hill sensibility and just tries to be a regular Joe. And he's in this relationship with Carter. By the time the book starts, they've been together for six years. And it's, you know, a love of a lifetime kind of thing. So these 32 books, by the way, are the complete series of the mysteries. So book 32 is the last one. The action, speaking of Sacramento, happens there at the very end. Like the culminating event happens on the steps of the, it's not the Capitol, but it's one of the state office buildings. Mm -hmm. Just a few months after Governor Reagan is inaugurated. But... So it's the, that first series goes from 53 to 67, and a lot of things happen. Nick and Carter end up moving to France after they kind of are afraid that J. Edgar Hoover is going to finally like move in and try and do something to them. So they get French citizenship basically by buying it, and then have all these adventures in France and Africa and Italy, and then come back to the U.S. and have more adventures. And so that series ended with book 32, and then I started a new series, which is two books in, just called The Adventures Of, because I didn't want to be tied into writing mysteries. Mm -hmm. And I almost did that at book 20, because I was like, 20 is a really good number. (laughs) Like, that's a good place to start. And then I was like, 32 is better, because in a display, it's like eight book titles with four rows. That's like... That the part of me that likes symmetry was very pleased with that. So I was like, 32 is perfect. 33 would be one too many. 31 isn't enough. So that's where we start. And everything that I write is in that same universe. Mm-hmm. So I have multiple series, but they're all interconnected. That is so cool. Because I didn't get that aspect of it as I was kind of researching. I could tell a lot of it was connected. I don't say it obvious. I do not put it out as an obvious thing up front. You have to be into the books to begin to realize oh, these characters actually were in this series also, you know, and they're coming in. And I try not to, like, advertise that too much, although it's fine that people know it. But it's more fun to me to let people kind of discover, Mm -hmm. oh, these are actually all... Easter eggs. Yeah. After a fashion. Exactly. When you created Nick, did you envision this whole universe and all these books? Nope. It wasn't until... So I started, the first book was May of 2016. It actually, it published on June 1st. Again, makes me very happy (laughs) symmetry-wise. And I wrote that one, The Amorous Attorney, and The Sartorial Senator back-to-back-to-back. Then I wrote a prequel called An Enchanted Beginning, which tells their backstory. That goes from like 47 until 50. And explains some people that they refer to and talks about kind of how they got together and what happened in the intervening years. And then I wrote the final story. One morning, I kind of woke up and I was like, I need to write this book that's about when they die. Because I need to kind of know where this is going. And I won't talk about the details, although if there's some books you already kind of know what's going to happen because it's discussed, because I do have one series that's contemporary. But when I wrote that, then I realized, oh, I have a lot of books to write. Because I could kind of see the pacing and I thought, yeah, from in the span of years that I'm looking at, that's a lot, a lot of books. And at one point I was like, because of my numbering system, how I keep internal stuff, there's only two digits. And I was like, well, I can't have a series that has 100 books in it. So I need to at least break them up into segments, you know, because I could easily see 100 books just with Nick and Carter. That's awesome that you have that much going on in the universe that you see that far ahead. I wanted to know because they're, as they're moving into time where I'm alive and I'm aware of what happened in their, you know, in the part of the world that they live in, I started thinking, well, you know, my first thought was like, well, will they survive? Like, will they be alive in 1994? Which is a big question. And yes, they will. But a lot of the people that are in the books early on probably won't. Mm -hmm. uh, Because, you know, just what happened. 
with AIDS, in mm-hmm. case anybody is not aware of what I'm talking about. And being in, because all of this is centered in San Francisco. What was the origin for Nick and Carter? What sparked all of this? There's multiple origin points. There's Dorothy Sayers, who's one of my favorite mystery authors, and her Lord Peter main character. And in fact, I have a version of Lord Peter who shows up in the late 50s and becomes kind of an integral part of their lives. So there was Dorothy Sayers, a little bit Agatha Christie, Perry Mason. I had spent a lot of time, I used to drive all over the country because I I have another job where I can basically be anywhere I want to be. And I spent about four years crisscrossing the U.S. and Canada. And when I was doing that, I would like entertain myself sometimes by making up stories in my head. And one of them was a Perry Mason where Perry and his private investigator were a couple. And then Della, his secretary, was like in love with Gertie, the receptionist, and they had like an on and off relationship and it was kind of like on the rocks and stuff. And so, and I was going to call it Mary Payson. So <laughs> they would always talk to him as Mary, Mary, but it's M E double R Y. Anyway, so those three, but the real clincher is Mabel Maney. And if you don't know who Mabel Maney is, you really need to rush out and find. If you have any interest in the Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew, Mabel Maney is the lesbian twist of Nancy Drew. She wrote three books. The first one is called The Case of the Not-So-Nice Nurse. And it's actually the Not-So-Nice Nurse, the character is based on Cherry Ames. But in Mabel's book, she's known as Cherry Aimless. And then she, in San Francisco, she meets Nancy Clue, who's drunk at a bar, dealing with her latest breakup. And the two of them fall in love. But it turns out that Nancy Clue is not the best girlfriend in the world. So it's all this, it's basically openly lesbian and gay characters because the Hardly Boys are also like their brothers, but they're both in love with different guys. And it turns out the Hardly parents, all is not what it seems to be. But there's a 50 sensibility with a camp sensibility that's kind of almost off the charts. And so it was a combination of all of those that kind of brought Nick to the fore. But the truth is, Nick kind of arrived fully formed. And I can say, like, yeah, there's a little bit of Lord Peter. There's a little bit of, like, that Mabel Maney kind of, like, everybody is gay. And I've had reviewers say, like, why are there all these gay people in this book? This would not have been normal. And my reply to that is, well, that's a little bit of fiction, but I think it probably would have been more normal than you think because if you were in a closed society, in a closed culture where you weren't able to talk about it, you would have had mostly gay friends. And they would, and it would have seemed like it was everywhere. That's how it was for me in the early 80s or in the mid-80s, that all of my friends were gay and everything I did was gay because we were in a closed culture, more so than we are today. So those are, that's kind of where it came from. But, but Nick and Carter, because they kind of come as a package, they just kind of arrived fully formed. I didn't do any, and so I didn't do any plotting. I didn't do any strategic, like trying to figure out who Nick should be. He just kind of mostly tells me who he is, as do all the other characters. Oh, there is one inspiration I left out. The person who inspired me to start writing and actually to get back into the whole world of gay fiction, because I had kind of stopped reading gay fiction because everything I was reading was really sad. People were dying all the time. But the person who inspired me to get back in it was J.B. Sanders, John Sanders, who wrote the Glenn Tyler series, writing. And I found an audiobook of his first book called Glenn and Tyler's, The Adventure of Glenn, uh, Glenn and Tyler's Honeymoon Adventure, the first book. And it's, they're kind of similar because Glenn like inherits all this money. Which years ago I wrote, somebody who was suggesting how to write mysteries had written a book about it, was like, it's so much better if you just go ahead and make your detective a millionaire because then you don't have to deal with that. Because, in fact, Sue Grafton is on the record as having said she really wished she'd make Kinsey Milhone a millionaire because she was really tired of, like, where was the suit money going to come from? That that was always, like, and she was always driving her beat-up VW up and down 101 all the time. So I kind of was like, yeah, that's it, that just does make it easier. But John, JB's book had really inspired me to 
because his book is basically about how happy they are. That's really there's 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 a plot and there are things that happen and it's interesting, but it's mostly about how much in love they are and how much they're enjoying getting to know each other and how much because it's the beginning of their relationship, the two main characters. Just and all the little things that happen as they kind of come out and they go about and do this and do that. And it's as I told him the first time I sent him an email, I was like, it's like you put the happy back in gay. Because for me, from what I had been reading, which was all centered in the 90s and the 80s, everybody was dying and everyone was sad. And all of a sudden, here were some happy people. And that was what I wanted to write about. I mean, there are sad things that happen, but Nick and Carter are generally happy. What is your series Bible like at this point? This is radio. You can't see that I'm pointing to my head. I don't have a series Bible. Wow. I should have had one. What I do have is the database where I can like, it's not a database of like facts and figures, but I generally can remember what it was. And sometimes I make mistakes. And then sometimes people will be like, is that the right name? Because I have, there's one lawyer. So one of the main characters at the beginning is Jeffrey Klein, who's Nick's second or third lover, really, and also was his lawyer who helped him, like when he inherited all this money, helped him figure out what to do with it. And Jeffrey disappears, and so then Nick gets a new lawyer whose names through the books have been variously Kenneth Dixon and Kenneth, I can't remember the other one, but when I even, I haven't gone back and fixed all of them, but Kenneth's last name keeps changing, <laughs> and I, don't, I have no idea why. He but, just has different aliases. Uh, yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah, because he's a lawyer, and of course that makes sense. But so I'm, you know, I make those kinds of mistakes every now and then, but I have a pretty solid team of beta readers who help keep me on track. And if I did a series Bible, it would be, it would have to be in a database. It's like, oh, yeah. it can't be in, like, it'd be this really long piece of paper. It'd almost be a book on itself yeah. at this point. Right. Now, of those influences that you've just mentioned, a lot of them are from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. Is that part of the reason why this particular mystery series is essentially historical? Well, I love that time period. I would not... To be absolutely clear, I do not want to go and be in that time period. I don't want the smells. I don't want all the smoke. I don't want the fact that, like, there was, like, cotton wool. These were your choices. Like, no. Even in San Francisco, like, everything feels hot and sweaty and gross to me. But, yeah, no, I love, I'm very, I'm a huge classic movie person. And I have always watched classic movies and felt like I was like digging into the screen and I wanted to move all the actors out of the way so I could see what the setup looked like. I wanted to see what it looked like. And I love it when there's a a classic movie where they have an actual outside shot like in New York or San Francisco and you can actually see what things look like because there's a lot of history, even in a movie. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm very, I'm a kind of a historian by avocation and I just love, love of history, and I love cultural history as well. So, yeah, that's why, that's why it just made sense that they would be set in the 50s, mm-hmm. and that that's where it would start. And it's not so much those books, although those books, because one of the things I love about Sayers is that if you want to know what Britain was like in the late 20s and early 30s, read her books. It's very topical. There's, in fact, a website devoted to, like, what does this word mean? What is this brand? What are they talking about? Because she doesn't explain anything because she's writing for her contemporary audience. And so the stuff she writes about, you have no idea what she's referring to. Mm -hmm. And I try to do that as well. I try not to explain too much. And I love it when somebody's like, I'm reading your book, and then I've got Google. And I'm, like, having to research what the words are. Because, yeah, that's, I kind of want that to happen. I don't want to be too, like, sitting on top of people and being like, I know you're kind of stupid, so I'm going to explain what this means. <laughs> I think generally, contextually, you can just tell what's going on. It's, even if you know, maybe you don't understand the specific reference, you, you get the meaning. Right. You, you can infer it. Right. And if you want the specific reference, I try to leave enough so that you can Google and find out mm-hmm. what it is. Because there's a part of me that wishes, I'm not going to do this, but there's a part of me that wishes I could like make a multi-format kind of book mm-hmm. where like you could like press something and then all of a sudden you could see the movie or you could like, so that you could, as you're walking through their reality, you could start seeing pieces and parts of it. But 
maybe one book I'd do. So if somebody's out there listening who wants to undertake that, contact Frank. (laughs) Yes, exactly. That would be a great thing. Because that would be super cool. It would be. Almost DVD extras of a kind. Right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of DVD extras, one of the things that I've loved so much about the Nick and Carter books is essentially your author notes at the end, where you explain some of the inspiration and some of the historical context and some of the research that you've done for each of the books. First, I want to know what made you decide to put those in the back? Well, it started off because in the first book, I was relying heavily on I can't remember how it happened, so I'm not going to get this exactly right. But I realized I needed a book about gay San Francisco in the 50s because there were certain things that I knew I didn't know enough about. And so I got a book by a woman who I think is now a professor at, at Cal, Berkeley, but at the time was at Sonoma State. And her last name is not going to come to me, but it's called Queer San Francisco. Or I think. I th- yeah, I think I know what, what yeah. we're talking about. Now. And, I re- and I put references and I put her in mm-hmm. acknowledgments uh, in several books because she does have like this whole list of these are all the bars, yeah. like the bar where Nick and Carter meet uh, is in her book. And it only existed for like six months. And my favorite part of that bar, by the way, side note, is that the name is La Vie Parisian. <laughs> not La Vie Parisienne, it's La Vie Parisian. And I had to go back, and I've had people like tell me, you made a typo. I was like, no, that was just a bunch of queens who were like, didn't really realize what French actually was, which I can totally see. That's not difficult to imagine. So, yeah, it was because of her book, and I realized I really do need to acknowledge what she said, and then I thought, I really need to acknowledge these other things and also explain a few things. Particularly like I wanted in that first book to explain the competition in San Francisco at the time between the four newspapers, the Examiner, the Chronicle, the Call, and the Bulletin, and why that was, because one of the pivotal things that happens in that book, it has to do with the Examiner and George Hurst, who was the oldest son of William Randolph Hearst, the guy who was the original owner, or the one who made it a big paper. And I wanted to explain all of that without like having Nick, like, sit and think, oh, the history of William Randolph first. <laughs> or in conversation, as you know. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, Which is, yeah, I really don't like that at all. But anyway, so the, writing the historical notes, sometimes I spend a lot of time on it, and then sometimes I get to the end of the book, and I realize everybody really should know everything that I've already said, and so I'll just be like, I'll say a few things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, it's a lot of fun to do that. How much of the research are you having to do for each book because you've generated you know the first one came out as you said in 2016 so in just four years you've generated all of these books right well the main way i research the books is first i go to the newspapers for whatever the beginning date is and i go like a day or two behind and then i read the front pages or the first three or four pages of each paper of the chronicle and the examiner just to kind of see what was going on so i can get a feel and now that I'm in the 70s, the, the Examiner was so great in the 50s because it was so right-wing and it was so red-baiting. And so they kind of like are becoming more like the Chronicle. They're moving a little bit to the left. They're moving a little bit more mainstream. And so it's like reading the two papers is like, oh, this is boring. <laughs> like there's like 53 papers and 54 papers. That was like, you'd think there were two different cities they were reporting on mm-hmm. because of how they would do things. But so anyway, so I start with the newspaper, and then I just, as the story evolves, I just find out what I need to know about, because I've made some serious errors, which I cop to, totally. The number one is, it's not really super mega obvious if you don't know what it is, but in the first edition of the first book, there's a funeral at Grace Cathedral, which is on Knob Hill, which is catty corner to the building that at the time Nick's father lives in. So they're, I say, they're, they walk down California Street and then walk up the steps and into the cathedral. But the cathedral was started in the 20s. In 1931, they stopped building it because they didn't want to spend money during the Depression. I think they had the money at the time, like in a foundation, but they wanted to give that to like feeding people who needed to be fed. So up until the early 60s, the cathedral looked like a giant had come along and sliced half of it off 
and they've taken it away because it literally there's like it looks like half a slice of bread it's really odd and i didn't know anything about that i knew what it looked like in the early 90s when i used to like i lived around knob hill and i used to see it all the time so one of the best beta readers I ever had contacted me and was like, first of all, I'm an Episcopalian, and that's not the way you refer to the bishop. And that Grace Cathedral, you couldn't walk up the steps in California Street because they weren't there. You had to go over to Jones and walk up those street, those steps. And it was over on the side because there was no front door. And it was really kind of weird, but everybody dealt with it. And so I, when I kind of figured out what he was talking about, I, I went back and fixed, and then I put in the historical notes there's an addendum at the end that says I fixed this ever since then I began to realize if I think a building is somewhere maybe it is and maybe it isn't <laughs> and so I go and I try and find every building I refer to every person that I think okay that person is there like I just wrote a, a short story about Martin Luther King Day the first one in 1986 and I really 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 wanted to include Bayard Rustin who was an openly gay, well, later openly gay, who really was the strategic brains behind a lot of what King did. And I had actually put him in the story, and then I was like, wait, where is he? I knew he died the next year, because I was living in New York when he died, and then I moved to New York in 87. So I was like, well, where is he? And I was like, well, of course, he's in New York, because he was running a foundation, and that he would have been in the New York parade or maybe might have gone to Atlanta to go to that parade because the Atlanta parade was the really, really big one. And so I was like, if Bayard Rustin isn't going to fly to San Francisco, even if there's a gay billionaire who's like, hey, would you come to San Francisco and hang out with us? Like, no, I have not Bayard Rustin in particular. Like, no, I'm not doing that. So I had to kind of go back and rewrite, but it's that sort of thing. I try to make sure that the people I think are in the place that they're in, that they actually are. And then when I go and research those things, I find little nuggets and pieces that get added into the story. I really love the whole newspaper thing, that you start with the newspapers as the root of what you're doing. Oh, and Life Magazine, and Time, oh. and National Geographic, because there's archives for all of those. When you were doing the original 32, did you have it in mind, like, I want it to start around this event or this moment? Or is it just the progression of the yes. Nick and Carter timeline? It's like, the way I like to talk about Nick and Carter is they're completely, unabashedly ahistorical. There's absolutely positively nobody that they re relate to. The first publicly out person, coast to coast, was Harvey Milk. That's 1976. So before then, there were, no, there were lots of out people, but they were out to a smaller arena. Nobody was literally out to the entire country mm -hmm. where it was talked about like on the evening news. So Harvey Milk is the first person. So Nick and Carter are, represent like, because that's what happens in the first book, is they're nationally outed, which of course wouldn't have happened and there was no such term at the time. But they're, so they're ahistorical and you could even say quasi-fantastical figures that are moving through historical events. They're not changing the events. They're formed and affected by them. So there's like still Stonewall and still the riots in the Tenderloin at Compton's Cafeteria that happened in 66. That all is still happening. They're kind of, you know, they kind of contribute to some of it and they're kind of on the sidelines of it. But one of the things that happens in the book 25, I think, we first meet some of the guys from Mattachine, in the San Francisco Mattachine, and which was an early gay rights organization, which would not have called themselves gay rights, by the way, they would call themselves a homophile organization. And they were not having Nick and Carter at all. They mm -hmm. do not want their money, they don't want to deal with them, because every person who and this happens with multiple people. Every person who is out locally, if they get touched by Nick and Carter and are seen in their presence, then any secret that they're still, any cloak that they're still using gets pulled off. So I did that with like Somerset Mom. I'd written an entire book where Nick and Carter are living like four blocks from Somerset Mom in Nice. And then I was like, well, oh, that's a terrible mistake. Like, he, he would have, and then I thought, no, he would have kept as far away from them as possible. He would have been like, I don't know them. 
I don't know who you're talking about, because if he was seen being connected to them, then it would have outed him. I didn't really have a plan as to, like, these are the historical events they need to encounter. In fact, I skipped over Stonewall. I skipped over the assassination of JFK, although it seems like they're going to be involved in that, but I skip over it. Mainly because I don't really want it to be about the things that everybody knows about. Mm -hmm. I do spend a little bit of time talking about the Compton Cafeteria riots because that's not really still very well known. But I don't, but I don't put them in that action also because I don't want them to interfere with agency that people have that has nothing to do with money. When one of my longtime readers found out that Nick and Carter die, and they die in their 80s, this person got very upset and was like, they're so rich. They could live to be like, and I'm like, you know, money actually really doesn't solve that problem. Cancer kills you no matter what. Mm -hmm. And there there are plenty of cancers that plenty of people die from who are very, very wealthy. It can help, but it doesn't cure. So in that same kind of vein, I didn't want to put them in a historical context where they would be interfering with other people who did amazing work with very little resources. So the backstory is always like, they're secretly funding, but nobody knows. There's a whole bunch about that. Not in writ large, but like in little tiny pockets. And I like how you pick elements that are perhaps not as well known. Stonewall's told a lot. I'll be honest that I didn't know this is my bad gay history. I didn't know about Compton until I got mentioned in the Netflix Tales of the City reboot. I don't really remember where I first heard about it, but I came across it in that book, The the Queer History of San Francisco. I read several things, the contemporary stuff that was written, because there's uh, an archive of kind of the street kids in the Tenderloin who had organized themselves because they prompted the riot to happen. They actually kind of, it's like Rosa Parks. They Mm -hmm. kind of staged it. They forced it to happen. And there's a great little archive where there's like this kind of street zine that they're doing. And there's ministers who are supporting them, like Cecil Williams, who is a big deal in San Francisco, who's still alive. He kind of helped them. And in those stories, they're not, like in the contemporary stuff, they're not talking about how they're oppressed. They're talking about how they're throwing off the shackles. And that's one of the things I also want to include in this. But I didn't know as much about, I know a lot more about Compton now than I would have ever thought I would know. Mm-hmm. Because when I lived in San Francisco, I don't remember anybody ever talking about it because I don't think it was really well known. You mentioned just a minute ago that you had the Martin Luther King Day story. At this year, you've been putting out stories so far for each holiday. You had New Year's, you had Martin Luther King Day, you had Valentine's Day with that very immediate follow of President's Day right. uh, a few days and then, later. And then in a couple of days, we're getting Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras coming right up. Yeah. A, this sounds like a lot of fun. B, it sounds like a lot of work to keep up with all the holidays. How many holiday books are you doing in for this year? 20. 20. And I've already written four of them. So I'd, Valentine's Day I'd written back in 2018. Mardi Gras, St. Patrick's Day, and Easter I'd already written. So I'm going to just update them a little bit and clean them up a little bit and include them. But yeah, so we've got St. Patrick's Day, Easter, Memorial Day, which will be Decoration Day because it'll happen in the 30s. And I'm really looking forward to that one because Nick and his sister Janet take the, I don't remember the, I can't remember the name of this streetcar, but the streetcar that goes out Geary out to Playland, which was like an amusement park that's long gone. That was at the ocean that took, it was like a big, like four block thing that was really large. And it'd mostly be them like riding the tilt whirl and throwing up. <laughs> but I just wanted, and it won't be a long story. I just want to write a story about the two of them, like having fun outside of the context of the hell that they're living in, basically. Mm-hmm. And just because, of course, they would have had like, they would be also like, they'd like have 10 bucks to spend, which means they're kind of like basically the richest people at Playland that day. So they can do anything and eat as much as they want and suffer the consequences as a result. So we'll do that and then like July 4th and blah, blah, blah. And the last one will be Boxing Day, which unless something happens between now and then, that I can't think will, I don't think that will, I don't think that will occur, will be set completely in Australia. And I still have to make sure that Boxing Day, 
is as big a thing in Australia as it is in Canada and the UK. I think it is. I could, I'm probably wrong, though. So that may change. <laughs> um, but there's, if anybody has read the series, they know why Australia is an important thing and why Nick Carter going back to Australia is very significant. So it's at some point in these stories, they're going back to Australia. I'm not quite sure when. But, but yeah, so it'll be 20. I went ahead and, and mapped them out and just so I would know. And then I was like, oh, yeah, now I really, all I have to do is the next book I have to write is Memorial Day. So I, whew, I have like, and then July 4th. So I have a lot of, oh, Mother's Day and Father's Day. I forgot about those, which will be sad little stories, probably, because it'll be like Nick's mother and Nick's father in both cases. But. And you're time hopping around in these too. Oh, like yeah. you mentioned, Decoration Day is going to be in the, 30s. in the 30s, and some of the other ones have been more. Well, New Year's Day was 79. One of my favorite reviews that I got on Goodreads for that one was this woman, I assume it's a woman, did a DNR, do not read, and didn't leave an actual star rating, but let a comment. And she was like, I really couldn't stand the amount of debauchery. And I was like, it's 1979, <laughs> the most debauched time in the United States that has ever occurred. Because it's basically like the whole story is about, mostly about Coke and people like doing Coke and selling Coke and buying Coke because it's 1979. And it takes place in Dallas, which was a very debauched place <laughs> at that point in time. So you've got all these other connected universes to what started as the mystery series. Tell us about some of the other tendrils that have come off. Well, so I have a series that's set here in Daytona. Actually, I have two series that are set here. I have one that is, the first book takes place in 1947. I've written four books, and it took about a year off. I'm actually, when I leave here, I'm going to the library because I need to go back and read the newspapers again. Tell me you're doing this on microfilm. That would make oh, me yeah. so happy. It, oh, yeah. That's I wish, so cool. <laughs> I really, really wish newspapers.com would swoop in and image all of them and then put them up in their massive, fabulous archive. But they have, if they're coming, they haven't they're not here yet. So, yeah, there's the morning paper and these evening papers. So I need to go back and read them. The next book will be set in 48, and it'll be centered around Bike Week. So that's set in Daytona Beach, and it, there's five characters who have voices, have POVs. There's Tom, Gerald, who's an attorney here in town. There's Ronnie Grisham, his lover. They've known each other since they were in high school in Tallahassee. And they ended up here in Daytona Beach. There's Alice, who is Tom's, well, now Tom and Ronnie's maid, who's black and lives over on around 2nd Avenue, which was the black part of town. That's near where Bethune-Cookman University is. So she lives on the north side of Bethune-Cookman. And she is friends with Dr. Bethune, who is for whom Bethune-Cookman is named, who was an amazing woman, by the way, friend of Eleanor Roosevelt's, really powerful person and did a lot of stuff for the community in this town, a lot. There's Alice, then there's Marvine, who lives about five blocks north of here. And then there's Howie, who is a kid who is the basically the... Tom's real first client of any of any notion in the first book. And he ends up kind of learning to be a PI under Ronnie's wing. So we've done four books that took us to the end of 47. And then this first book is going to be, like I said, March of 48. The other series that I'm doing is contemporary, and it also takes place here. And it's Wit and Eddie and I'm Eddie. Eddie, the Whit and Eddie books are basically my live memoir. Eddie's history is my history. I've changed some things to protect the innocent and the guilty, to be quite honest, <laughs> to protect myself from lawsuits. But Eddie, Eddie and I, our history diverges in about 2014. So Eddie ends up working for the guys who inherit Williams Jones, which is the company that Nick and Carter own after they pass away. And then Witt is a professional football player who retires, who was playing for a fictional expansion team in San Antonio, owned by the guys who own Williams Jones. And and then there's an insta-love, because there's a lot of insta-love in my books, because it's Nick. Nick is like the king of insta-love. He can like, 
there's, in fact, in the Mardi Gras story, he, there's a very direct example of him, like, looking at, a, at the crowd on Bourbon Street, and there's some guy they've just met, and he looks, and he's like, that one, that's the guy. And then Carter goes over and finds the guy and brings him over, and sure enough, like, every, they have all this stuff in common, and they end up falling in love instantly. So, so Nick orchestrates Whit and Eddie falling in love from beyond the veil as a ghost. And, and they do, and blah, 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 and then things happen. So I'm five books into that, and that happens here. Whit and Eddie live, so we're on the beach. If you go in a straight line over to the river, they live right in, the, in, that, in that block or the block south of there, in an old house that is a really cool arts and crafts house that I'd love to get inside sometime and take a look at. <laughs> that is so cool. I mean, I love interlocking universes anyway, and the way that you've locked all this together, I think, is just the coolest thing. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It really, really, really is a lot of fun. Oh, and Ronnie from the 40s and 50s books is actually still alive as of this moment, and is 103. Mercy. <laughs> and is still, like, and has become, like, he he don't care. So he's, like, you know, reading people the f- to filth, and, like, it, it's a lot of fun. So we know there's more holiday books coming this year. Anything else we could expect in 2020? Oh, well, yeah, probably about 15 or 20 more books. The next, the book I'm working on right now is called The Biker Who Got Bumped Off, which is about the 1948 bike week here in Daytona. It's all about it. It's a trial. And there's actually been elements of this already discussed. In the Whitney books, Ronnie spends a lot of time moping and no one can really figure out what it is, and it has to do with what happens in this trial. And in the very last Nick and Carter book, or the mystery, the one half of it takes place in Sacramento, in that book there's a, a guy who shows up in San Francisco who was involved in that trial. And it happens that Tom and Ronnie are visiting Nick and Carter at that time, and they're like, oh, we know that guy, because we, back in 48, blah, blah, blah. So that book, then the, the next book will be uh, book three in the Adventures of Nick and Carter. And it'll be the continuation of the TV show that Nick is in the middle of producing, which is like kind of Diane Carroll-esque centered, but in, set in the 70s. It's, if you, I can't, there's, I, we don't have enough time for me to explain this book. <laughs> I love this story so much. But you I had mean, me at Diane Carroll. So. Yeah. Well, Diane Carroll is kind of over on the side. There's like the the main character who's in who's like the star of this TV show. It's a black woman who is a millionaire in 1970, and so the show CBS won't take it. So it's going to go into syndication immediately. And in fact, in a Whit and Eddie book, the one that came out back in December, Eddie talks to a couple of the characters who are black, and it says, "Have you ever heard of this TV show, Touch of Rouge?" And one of them is like, that's my mother's favorite TV show ever. When it finally came out on DVD, I bought them and I've watched them all and I have a copy and like, and they're just like, oh, because like, it was like this powerful black woman. Like Diane Carroll was a nurse. That was great. That was better than being a maid. But this woman owned her own business and blah, blah, blah. Like it was a big deal. So that was fun. Uh, so we got more of that. And then after that will be Whit and Eddie. And speaking of TV, they're building a studio out west of town and they're going to bring movies to daytona beach because they now own a movie studio called monumental which attention mgm sony lawyers i have borrowed the name of monumental pictures from singing in the rain (laughs) if you'd like to sue (laughs) p.o box but i just couldn't stand not using that name so so it's monumental pictures that's producing the tv show in the 70s and then uh, Wit is going to be the star of a TV show that's set here in Daytona Beach that's kind of like Baywatch meets Brothers and Sisters kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Lots of stuff on the plate this year. Yeah. So my goal is, I still have not achieved it, my goal is to do three books a month. So one in each one of the series. And we'll see if I ever get there. So far, the best I can do is two. But I really, every month I'm like, okay, this is the month I'm going to do three. So we'll see. That's awesome. What's the best way for everybody to keep up with you online to actually find out what all this stuff's coming out and what comes up next in the pipeline? 
Well, my website is frankwbutterfield.com. And the W is important because there are other Frank Butterfields, believe it or not. So frankwbutterfield.com. That's how you can get in touch with me, get sign up for the newsletter. I'm also on Facebook. I'm sort of kind of on Twitter, although nobody really finds me there. I'm also kind of on Instagram. If you like pictures of the ocean, that's what my Instagram feed is all pictures of the ocean. We, we did our mandatory ocean picture when we got here this morning. So yeah, the best way to reach me is either through Facebook or on the website. And on the website, I have links to all my books and the whole setup. As far as what's coming next... Because of the way I write, I don't really have a what's coming next until I have already gotten into the writing of it. And then I begin to like drop hints as I find little tidbits of interesting things. I'll like do posts because I have a group on Facebook called Butterfield Stories. I'm sure I could come up with a better name, but that's what I started <laughs> with. Where I do like drop little things of like this when I find hilarious ads or things on the newspapers from the times that I'm looking at, I just will mention something about it but that's where i mostly i give people about a five to seven day notice that there's another book coming out that's why i don't have i don't do pre-orders i don't have a i i really do write just as the book comes to me all right well we'll definitely link to all of that in the show notes so that people can find what's out there and you know check in multiple times a month to see (laughs) what you have released Frank, thank you so much for coming and hanging out with us a little bit today. And it's been so great to hear about this massive Nick and Carter universe. Well, thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun. It's been a real pleasure to meet you guys in person and get to do this. Really great. This week's interview transcript has been brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the author interview for yourself, simply head on over to the show notes page for this episode at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. And thanks again to Frank for coming to talk to us. I love this interview so much, and in particular, I love hearing the ambitious plans for these 20 books he's writing this year, specifically around the holidays. That Mardi Gras book just dropped this past week as Mardi Gras happened down in New Orleans, and I think that's a terrific exercise to do to do a whole bunch of holiday books through the year. Yeah, definitely. I hope everyone will give those books a try. I really enjoy the Nick and Carter series. Okay, guys, I think that's going to do it for this week. Now, coming up next in episode 231, we'll be talking with Tammy Middleton. She writes as T.M. Smith, and we'll be discussing the relaunch of her All Cox series. Yes, we get all the details about why she renamed the series Stories from the Sound, and we're also going to get some early details on her forthcoming Chaos Magician series. Yeah, that's going to be good. So guys, remember, no matter where life takes you, the journey will always be sweeter when you have a book. Until next time, everyone, please keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. New episodes of this show are available every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. You can help support this show with a monthly pledge through Patreon. For more information about joining our community and the bonus content we deliver, check out patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. I'm Kurt Graves. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>